This is the Garden Path Podcast. Hello, garden friends. I'm your host, Misty Little, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. How is your spring going? We have been recovering fairly well from the February deep freeze and then having to recover again from a bad hailstorm a couple of weeks ago. So my gardening morale has kind of gone in waves. In the meantime, I have been diving into the natural world beyond the garden to appreciate native plants and the natural world around me, which fits right into today's episode. Laura C. Martin is the author of 26 books that span a 40-year career. She paints and writes from Atlanta, Georgia, where she's lived throughout her life. Gardening and art was cultivated in her from a young age with parents who enjoyed doing both, and over the years she adapted writing her books to also illustrating them as well. Her latest is A Naturalist Book of Wildflowers, which she illustrated. In it are beautiful paintings of the specimens she chose to highlight, as well as wonderfully detailed information about each plant species from their range, their wildlife partners, to their cultural history and botanical uses. I think you'll love our conversation and want to add her book to your field guide collection. Quick note, about six minutes in, you're going to hear a phone ring and I do apologize. I did not unplug my phone. I recorded that at my office at work and I meant to unplug it before I hit record and totally forgot. So you'll hear the phone ring. I quickly unplugged it and anyway, I do apologize. It wasn't really an easy way to edit that out. Okay, on to the episode. Well, yeah, and also I'm, I'm glad I was made aware of your book uh, through the publisher because I was unfamiliar with your work and all of your uh, natural history work, and I am excited to be sitting down and chatting with you today. Um, so maybe if you want to just start a brief introduction of who you are and a little bit about your background and, and where you're from, and because you know, I only know a little bit about your from your blog and reading your, your new book, but I don't know that much about you. Okay, well, thanks. And thanks for um, interviewing me today. It's always fun to talk about things that I'm passionate about. Um, I'm a native Atlantan and grew up and have been living and gardening here pretty much most of my life. I grew up out on the outskirts of Atlanta, and my parents were both nature lovers. And my mother, my mother in particular, was a wildflower lover. So, you know, I came by it naturally from her and um, have just loved the wildflowers all my life. So when I was at the University of Georgia, I got a degree in botany and then began writing almost immediately after that. So at this point, I've written, this is my 26th book. And most of them, not all of them, but most of them are about plants and one way or another. So if you've got a degree in botany, like, were you always interested in writing too? Or how did that, like, begin to form for yourself? Like, I'm going to go do botany instead of becoming a field biologist, you're writing books. How did that? Right. Um, well, you know, I think natural inclination that even though I am so glad, so very glad to have scientific background, my more natural inclination and personality is much more geared toward English and writing and art and, and that end of it. So I've just been able to combine that. And I think that the scientific degree provided a wonderful foundation for the work that I've done since then. Right, right. So those first books that you wrote 40 years ago, how, what, was impetus into getting into book writing versus, and I think you've written, you know, write articles and do that sort of work as well. But 
from going like, I'm going to write one book, and now you've got 26 books. That's, that's, a, that's a big career. <laughs> well, it's a long career, too, which is, I, I laugh because when everybody says, when anyone says, well, what do you like best about your work? I always say, well, I let people let me publish just one more book. And, you know, writing a book is a year of indulgence of researching and writing and wallowing in things that you love. So I've been really, really fortunate. Um, my first job after the university was as a naturalist at George's Callaway Gardens. And it was my job to take visitors on wild, wildflower walks. And in doing so, I was kind of surprised that they weren't as interested in the technical aspects of the wildflowers as I was fresh out of college, but what they were interested in was how the plants got their names and what they were used for and if they were used medicinally or in a ceremony. So this is what I began to focus on. And, you know, I wrote a book before I wrote an article. It was just really fortunate that I was able to go directly into the book writing business. Right, right. Now, did I think I read on your blog your at least your mom was pretty creative. Now, were you always into art as well, or did that develop as you were writing books? No, I come from a very creative family. I have four brothers and sisters, and each of us, in some way, um, either writes or um, does art. So, my mom taught art all my growing up years, and I just I just loved it, but I didn't start doing botanical art until about 20 years ago. My first books, um, other people illustrated, but then I thought, you know, I, I could do this. I could learn to do this. So I began taking classes at the New York Botanical Gardens and went through their certificate program, which is a 200-hour program, and it is just excellent. So I feel very privileged that I was able to do that. Right. Now, I've always been kind of interested. I'd make art as well, but I've never uh, gotten down to the technical aspects of botanical art. What do they teach you in those kind of classes? Well, you start at the very basics. And um, the first classes were in botany, which I told them I had a degree and maybe I could skip those. So they, <laughs> they allowed me to skip those. But then... You begin with graphite pencil and you learned technique that way. And, you know, just all of the art of creating, but also all of it geared toward um, plants. So we took classes in graphite pencil and pastels and watercolors and oils and all different kinds of plants as well. But traditional botanical art is done in watercolor. So that's a medium that I used in the book and to do the illustrations. But I'm also a textile artist. So I have done botanical art on quilts, I've painted mm. and then embroidered and quilted these botanical images. So, you know, it's been fun. It's been fun to explore different venues and in different mediums using plants as a basis. Right, right. Now, do you have a favorite medium you like to use? Like, I mean, I mean, I know you do a lot of everything, but I think everybody, artists tend to lean towards one that you like the most. Well, because it's the, um, because I do so much illustration work, I, um, 
I probably prefer watercolor because it's what I'm most familiar with. It's what is traditionally used for illustration. But I do also love graphite pencil. Just the simplicity of, of just that black and white and gray areas. I think it's really challenging and, and really beautiful. Now, do you sell your work any other manner or do you mostly make your art for yourself? No, mostly it's for myself and I work a lot with kids. So, um, you know, I'm not so interested in selling art as I am just being able to do my own illustration and to explore in different ways that I can use this in the book in uh, the Naturalist Guide to Wildflowers. I have a chapter on um, crafts that you can do with different mm-hmm. wildflowers. So that was fun. And also a chapter on kids and wildflowers. So that's, that's how I'd prefer to spend my art time is to share it with kids and to get them involved. Okay. Okay. So is this also the educational aspect versus the um, business aspect, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, you have children, right? Yeah, I have a son. So, I mean, you, you know how much fun and how gratifying it is to be able to share that. Yes. Yes. Now, you mentioned, you know, thinking like the the ability to be able to just publish one more book. And I'm sure now you, you know, you've published this book, you're already thinking on your 27th book. But what was, how did this book come to fruition? Why, why this book and not, I don't know, something else? Um, I had taken a break from writing for about 10 years. I ran a nonprofit organization um, that worked with women in Haiti. So when I came back to writing, I really wanted to go back to doing work with wildflowers because this is what my first book was about. It had been 40 years since I had published the first book, which was Wildflower Folklore. And I was fascinated in how much botany and the study of native plants has changed since then. You think it's sort of static, but with the new interest in native plant gardening and Um, our new awareness of aggressive and invasive plants and our new awareness of um, pollinators. You know, these are things that I I just love and I really wanted to do more research to dive into it deeper and to share that. Okay. Now, because you had that break for 10 years, did you have trouble finding a publisher or did you already have an agent still? How does, I mean, I also... (laughs) I think I share the same thing as you do. I do a lot of art. I like to be creative. And I also write on the side. And I'm just curious from that aspect, how that worked out for you being, you know, a little bit silent on the writing. Did it, yeah. it easy to get back into the publishing industry? Well, not only has botany changed in the last 40 years, <laughs> but publishing has changed tremendously with self-published books now it's um you know the competition for the bookshelf safe space is just amazingly difficult uh however i have a very very close friend who is my agent and she has stuck in with me and she was enthusiastic about this book it's first really fully illustrated book that i've done and I wanted to do it all. I wanted to kind of combine the text and the illustrations. And actually, there was a, there was a good bit amount of interest in it. I had interest from several publishers. I think because it was 
it's different. You know, the combination, the fact that I was able to do both the writing and the illustrations and to weave them into each other um, makes it a little different than other Wildflower books. Yeah, no, it's extremely beautiful. And I, I appreciated the, the paintings as well instead of just a f- photographs, which I think are helpful as well. But to see the artistry and your interpretation of of all the different wildflowers and the details. And it's just, it's really neat to see. And hi, well, just on the coneflower and you have a little goldfinch on it, you add the little details that you wouldn't see in a photograph. Well, I think that even though it's not specifically an identification guide, I included 85 plants that are native to the United States, most of which are pretty well known, one species or another. For example, trilliums, I didn't try to include and write about each individual species, but I treated it as a genus. And then within that, talked about and wrote about the different um, species. But I feel like because you've got these illustrations that are annotated that they have you know little arrows pointing to the notched petals or you know pointing down to what the the basal rosette looks like you know just these things terms that people may not be real familiar with if you've got it there on the illustration I think that it helps people identify the flowers more easily right now how long did it take you to do all of these drawings I mean is it? And I know books processes takes a long time. Were you working on these for several years and kind of put the book together, or you're like, oh, now I've got a book deal. I got to write, I gotta draw eighty five plants. The latter. Okay. <laughs> you know, I love to. I love to write. I love to draw and to do the the illustrations, but also love to do a lot of other things. So I I waited until I got a firm offer before I launched fully into doing the writing or the the illustrations. The illustrations is what took uh, a an enormous amount of time. Fortunately, I love it, but you know, the writing I've been writing for so long and this material is is fairly um accessible and fairly familiar to me. So the writing didn't take nearly as long as the illustration did, but it was fun. You know, it was fun trying to come up with whimsical way to illustrate these. For example, a lot of plant names, people go, well, why was monkshood called monkshood? And and the answer is, of course, because each individual flower looks like the hood of a medieval monk. So in the book, I drew the flower and then beside it, I drew a little monk to show, you know, where the name came from and, and to help people make that association. Right, right. Um, sorry, I got distracted. I, I'm looking, listening and reading through your book. <laughs> <laughs> so did you draw from life or were these photographs that you had on hand? Or are you looking for stock photography? I mean, like you mentioned, there's 85 plants and you obviously are not you know, honing on to every single species that you can. So I would assume some plants you may not have access to. Right. Um, Well, number one, it was COVID. So I was limited in the amount of traveling that I could do. I had thought it'd be so much fun to use this as a basis to travel, you know, an excuse to travel and to see wildflowers all over the country. But 
that didn't work out so well. So, (laughs) you know, I did what I could from here and used as many live plants. I have a fairly large and um, happy native plant garden. So I was able to draw from a lot from my own garden. Um, But obviously I wanted to include plants that were native to each region of the country and, and some don't grow here. So I had to use photography. Um, But I tried to use uh, royalty free images just so that I didn't want to copy somebody else's beautiful work. Right. Right. Yeah. I've always wondered how that worked when people were doing botanical illustrations or things of this nature, like how that, how that handled? <laughs> well, I think technically, and I may be wrong, but I think technically that if you do it in a different medium, that it's not subject to copyright. But, you know, there's there's a respectful way to do it, too. Right. And, you know, some, some photographs look, you could find 30 that look almost identical. So I didn't worry so much about that. But yeah. when I could, I drew from, from live plants. Right, right. Now, and you talked about the narrative being the easier thing to put together, but I really appreciated, because when I was looking at this, got the chance to preview the book, I wasn't sure. I was like, okay, this is just going to be a wildflower book, blah, blah, blah. But I opened it, and <laughs> I was very impressed because, I mean, I, the detail you put into it, um, the habitat and range, the conservation, the wildlife partners, which I appreciate because I'm always wondering – you don't get that information unless it's a particular plant, like this plant mm-hmm. feeds black swallowtails, whatever. But you got much more in detail on some of this, like I'm on the Indian pipes, like bears eat the flowers and the roots and it's pollinated by long tongue bees. Like you would never get that. And in most books and you would have to dig around on the internet to find that and medicinal uses, like, is this just like a bucket of knowledge that came out of your head or how much research did you have to, because this is a lot of information. I would love to say I had all that in my head, but no. And thank goodness for the internet, because a lot of this um, I was able to, to research on the internet. Um, And it's so different, of course, than it was 40 years ago when there was no internet to use. I was particularly um, eager to include information both about the conservation and about the uh, um, pollinators and, and wildlife partnership because I think that as we begin to garden more and more with native plants and to include it in our repertoire that it's important to know you know how it fits into a bigger picture not only, you know, for a pollinator garden, but also, I mean, a lot of these are just going to be eaten up by deer. So yeah. you might as well save your time and your money. But also, as far as this conservation, you know, is it is it invasive? And a lot of native plants are, I think, politically correct term is aggressive if it's a native, not um, invasive, but the the end result is the same and you know or is it something that we can help by planting more of i mean the classic example is milkweed and the monarch butterfly and that's so well known that without the without the milkweed that we wouldn't have the monarchs but many of our native plants are 
um, specific pollinator or host plants for many of our native bees, insects, mm -hmm. butterflies. So it's really important, I think, that you plant within your region, that you plant plants that are native to your region. Not only will they grow better and they will do better, but also because this is where the native pollinators are. Right, right. Now, on the medicinal use, and as, as I was flipping through this book, we were actually driving to go camping, and my husband was ask, looking over, and he's like, now, did, has, has anybody ever, like, test some of this medicinal use stuff? I mean, obviously, a lot of this stuff is handed down as folklore and knowledge, and I'm sure some of it did treat aspects, but I'm just curious, like, what do you come across when you're researching this information, like, the, to the efficacy on some of this cultural um, medicinal use information? Well, I think that a lot of modern medicine today um, is based on the folk usage of a lot of plants. Yeah. Um, the United States does not have a huge repertoire of medicinal plants. Unfortunately, when plant explorers from Europe were coming to, quote, the new world, this is one of the things that they were so eager to find and um, didn't. I mean, there are some great uh, examples. Ginseng is, is a tremendous example. And ginseng is beloved and used a lot by uh, the Chinese. And what they use it for is a general spring tonic. They, they think it's an aphrodisiac. So, you know, does it work? I don't know. But a lot of the medicines that were used by the pioneers and by the native peoples have been proven to be, or to have chemicals based um, that are, are useful in medicines. Mayapple potophyllum is a good example. It is chemicals were originally found in mayapple and now they are extracted and um, they're created in a laboratory but the basis was the wildflower. Bloodroot, um, sanguinaria is another example. And this was used for a while because it was thought to stop cancer growth, but the side effects were such that it was proven not to be effective. You know, another example is echinacea, which of course is widely, widely grown and it's a native um, plant to the United States. It's a prairie plant. So yeah, there's been a lot of testing and there's a, a lot of um, a lot of information and indication that there may be some good usage. Um, although I would not encourage anyone to go out <laughs> and yeah. pick, pick blood root and, and eat it. Because most of the medicinal plants are also toxic. So you have to know what you're doing. You have to know which part of the plant. You have to know what time of year it, it's growing and is most useful. And that's true as far as the edibility of a lot of these plants. I mean, pokeweed is highly toxic. But if you're from Appalachia, you eat poke salad, which is the young mm -hmm. leaves and you have to wash them multiple times and cook them down and so forth. But it's quite a delicacy. See, you kind of have to know what you're doing. There yeah. are safe plants to eat. And fortunately, a lot of these are weeds. You know, chickweed or violets 
are dandelions. All of these are edible. Please pick them. They're they're so you know aggressive <laughs> that you know you want to take a second grade class out and get them to pick all the dandelions out of your yard. But there are there are the edible and medicinal plants that um, are quite useful. Now, did you have a favorite part of the book you like you worked on? I think you said the the art was fun, but I mean, was it did it get tedious at times, or were there sometimes you were like, oh, I just want to work on the writing? Um, yes, <laughs> there were days that I just said, okay, I'm just going to write today. Um, the artwork was fun. Um, the more detailed part was doing the full page color illustrations so there is full page illustration for each of the plants mentioned and then there are more whimsical drawings so and those were those were fun they're smaller they're quicker for example columbine um there's an old superstition that says that if you carry a piece of columbine that you'll have good luck so i did a little pocket on a pair of blue jeans with columbine coming out of it you know that that's kind of stuff is fun. For Jack in the Pulpit, I drew the plant and had a little guy preaching from inside the, yeah. the pulpit. So, you know, those, those were humorous for me. <laughs> I thought they were funny. Hopefully yeah. my readers will, will enjoy them. Did you have any favorite flowers in the book that you, or, or let me rephrase that. Was there anything that you, like, I have to include this in the book. It's my favorite must include it and then was there anything that you learned about later that you kind of added in well yes um i love fringe gentian i just think it is the most beautiful wildflower that we that grows in the south so you know there were some the lady slippers also which is on the cover of the book you know there were some that are just so beautiful you just have to draw and some of the trilliums painted trillium so those were the ones that you know aesthetically i i just loved some of the plants in the book i included like ginseng because it's so well known as a medicinal plant um things like blue camas which grows prolifically out in the western part, the mountain states, I included because it was such an important part of the Native American culture. Um, the women would dig the bulbs of camas and roast them and store them, and then they would actually use it as currency. At one point, a bag of camas bulbs could buy a horse. So, hmm. you know, I just think, I really love the cultural aspects of that. There was a little plant called bunchberry, which is pretty common. It's creeping dogwood and it's low growing plant and it's kind of unassuming. Um, but in doing research, I found out that when the pollen is released, it's done so all at once. So the, the petals stay curled around the, the pollen, the stamen. And when it gets ready to release, the petals will spring back like all of a sudden. And the pollen is released at a rate of 28,000 meters per second. I wow. mean, you have to have a <laughs> camera that would have 10,000 frames a second to be able to capture this. But you can see it online. Somebody has a camera like that. Wow. And I just like, you know. 
It is crazy. I mean, who would have guessed? It's called the fastest plant in the world. So how could I not include that? That's just fun. Yeah, and that's what I appreciated about was all the little tidbits that you included in this book that you could learn that, I don't know, you wouldn't glean from otherwise unless you really dug around on the internet because <laughs> you were researching something. But I think this will trigger people to to look into something a little bit closer, some plant that they love, whether it's in this book or they're curious about something that's growing, you know, in their own backyards or uh, parks nearby. Um, that's well, what I appreciate. I hope so. You know, I think that it's one thing to learn the name of somebody or something, but it's something altogether different and more interesting if you know something about somebody or a plant. So, you know, if you see bunchberry growing, you can go, oh, yes, that's that's cornice and it's bunchberry. But then if you know this about the pollen, even if it's not exploding when you're right there, you know, that's just fun. So I think that with with more education, people will become more interested. And I do believe that when there's a greater interest that you, you take care of things that you're interested in. So, you know, it's my way of introducing people to a deeper understanding of the plants that grow in our, in our wild and perhaps encouraging better stewardship. Right. Right. Now take a, break from the book for a few minutes. I wanted to talk about your garden a little bit. I saw a little bit of photos on your blog, but I maybe just walk us through it. You said you had used a lot of your native plants for this book in from your garden as, as specimens to draw from, but what do you grow? What is, I mean, I know what Southeast Georgia's or Atlanta, Georgia is kind of like for a uh, growing season. It's the South, it's humid, it's hot. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, maybe yeah, walk us through your garden a little bit. Maybe not as humid and hot as Houston. That's probably true. <laughs> it's pretty humid and hot. Um, well, my garden is divided into two distinct areas. I have a front yard garden, which is full sun. And it's the first time I've had this garden about, I don't know, 18 years. And it's really the first time that I had a front yard street garden. And we live in a neighborhood. So I had to kind of garden with the thought that, it it's bad to fit into the rest of the neighborhood, which it, it is stunningly beautiful, I think, because it's sunny and this is where I can put all my sun-loving annuals and perennials. So in and amongst the pansies and um, the daylilies, I have planted pink yarrow, which yarrow is a native plant. I have some enothera species, some of the... Um, the evening primrose, both pink and the yellow, which I understand can be very aggressive in some areas, but not so much here. Mm-hmm. So I have these all planted in and um, among the other things and quite a few vegetables I have to add just because this is where I have the sun. Yeah. But it's in the back that I have the majority of the wildflowers and the native plants. And I, I, always complain because they spread and spread and spread. But I was, I was walking through um, North Carolina mountains this weekend. We went hiking as well. And I was noticing that in nature, that's what they do. You know, I would come across an acre of trillium grand florum 
And then in a different trail or in a different area or even a different elevation, I would come across lady slippers and then trout lily. And it's not that nature is conducive to a, um, you know, this nice collection <laughs> that where things stay in, in their spot. They like to spread. Nature loves a community. Yes. So uh, this is something that I am sort of shifting in my idea. Because right now I have a lot of different things planted in in beds, and you know I love that mixture. But as this garden has matured, it's clear that things wanna things wanna spread, yeah. things wanna yeah. make a community. So I think that in the future, and a garden is always always changing. And you know, being an artist, and you're an artist, so you know you always are thinking, okay. What if I would move this over there? And what mm-hmm. if I would, you know, create a space here and and do that? But I'm I'm thinking that if really what I want to do is to mimic a natural environment, then what I need to do in my own garden is to create and allow these communities to develop. So that's kind of a new idea. That's not the way it looks like now. Right now it looks like a bunch of bullies on the playground and let's see who, <laughs> yeah. who comes out at the end, which I realize means that everybody looks a little battered. But I have um, Virginia bluebells, which are beginning to spread. I have mayapple, which certainly colonizes. I have, it's not the native um, salmon seal. It's that variegated, beautiful variegated um, kind But it is starting to spread. And every time I introduce something else, I know that if it's happy, it's going to start to spread. So I think it's my job as a gardener and partnering with Mother Nature to to allow more space for that to happen. And that will mean less variety in my backyard. But, you know, I think that's okay. I'm, I'm always learning and I think this is a new insight for me and in a new way that I want to aid nature. Yeah. No, I, I kind of, I, I see exactly where you're going because it's kind of where I'm at in, in my own garden is realizing that the gardens are, they're almost, they're almost too small to be contained for what the garden, what it wants to do. <laughs> so, right. Exactly. And I, I, I just need to either smaller, less plants so that they can do their own thing or re- just re-envision everything. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I'm adjusting as well. It. But, you know, you're probably as frugal as I am and hate to throw away plants, which yeah. means when I dig up, it just takes all day because then I have to find a new spot for them. And then, you know, you have to take care of it and water it and prepare the soil and do yep. all that stuff. So it's not as easy as just weeding where you're, you know, digging up monkey grass and throwing it away yeah. because these are good plants and gosh my neighbors are see me coming and they're like no no more, <laughs> no more. but they're beautiful oh my goodness um well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time but I do want to ask you if you can where can people buy your book I mean I'm sure you could buy it at all the major retailers online but I don't know if you're selling it uh, yourself from your website at all or if you suggest any you know retailers and for people who may be in Georgia uh, that you'd prefer to go them to go buy it from or anything like um, that you know all the all the major online 
people are, are carrying it in Georgia. I know that Barnes & Noble stores have it in person. Um, I have all the links on my website and my blog. I do a weekly gardening blog, which is lots of fun for me to write. And um, I enjoy doing that. And that's called naturebasedblog.com. And I have links there for um, for purchasing the book, as well as contact form if you want an autographed copy or if you want to inscribe to someone in particular. Okay. Okay. And uh, do you have any upcoming speaking appearances? I know hopefully we're going to be getting back into, you know, people going to meetings and clubs and things like that. Is there anything coming up for you? Well, the first thing that comes up is that the local master gardeners are coming to my garden, which has sent me into a tizzy. I mean, you know, they, they keep saying, oh, we'll take it as it is. But when you have, when you have master gardeners coming, you really, you want it to look good. So I've been spending a lot of time and I'll be talking to district gardening clubs and going down to Savannah, Georgia in the fall and um, up to the mountains and down to Florida. So yeah. Lots of lots of gardening groups and lots of fun stuff coming up. All right. Well, Laura, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about a natural book of wildflowers. I'm extremely glad I got to check it out. And I am I love all of the drawings. I love all the tidbits of information you included. And I think especially for me, I think the wildlife partners and the conservation aspect is what I definitely want want people to take away from it that's my that's my personal thought but um i appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and and just for writing this awesome book thanks it's been lots of fun that's it for my conversation with laura i hope you'll be enticed to check out her book as well as her blog both of which i've linked to on the podcast website at the with the rest of the show notes for the episode until next time happy gardening